Let's take our Bible and turn to the book of Acts chapter 16. Those in Sunday school are well aware that this is where we're going. We were in Philippians chapter 4 earlier, and uh, we will be not in Philippians chapter 4, but we will be in Philippi in chapter 16 of the book of Acts in our study of the uh, book of Acts, the continuing works of Christ. And uh, last time we were here in chapter 16, we saw on uh, last Sunday night the, the Macedonian call. The Macedonian call. So let's start in verse number 6, and I'll read down to verse number 15, and then we'll pray. And uh, we'll get into uh, several points here uh, about what the Lord did in Philippi. Verse 6 says, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by the riverside, where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Let's pray together. Our fathers, we come to look at your word. Lord, our hearts, our minds, our, our desire is to be focused and to be attentive, like Lydia was, attentive to your word this morning. Lord, we know that this work is a spiritual work and that nothing of eternal value and profit can be done apart from your grace and apart from the power of your word as used by your spirit among us. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in each and every person's heart. Thank you for the Sunday school time or uh, not only our class, but also the kids' classes could, could study the Word and could be encouraged, encouraged and exhorted in the things of God. I pray uh, for your grace to be upon our service this morning. Lord, you alone know the hearts of each and every person and what our needs are, our spiritual needs. Lord, perhaps there's one among us that's not yet converted, whose heart you have not yet opened. Lord, would you please open their heart here this morning. Bless our, our service, Lord. Bless those as well that are listening in uh, by means of the internet. Lord, please just give an, give an openness and a willingness to receive your word. And Lord, help me to know what to say to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So now Paul, he has the Macedonian call. And if you look at the Macedonian call, of course, we already saw last Sunday, we saw the, uh, we saw the, the map and we saw where Paul was. He was on the... On the the western edge of Turkey in Troas, and they were traveling, and he was praying and trying to figure out where the Lord wanted them to go. And you have this 
kind of sensational, this dramatic event with the Macedonian call, where this, he has this vision of this man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And you might assume from the Macedonian call that the Lord intended, the Lord had perhaps had a prepared group of people that would be waiting for Paul when he crossed the Aegean Sea and got to uh, what is now what's called Greece. And that just wasn't the case. Just the sad reality is that wasn't, wasn't the case. They went to the, he went to the largest city in the area, which is Philippi. It's called a colony here, which is an interesting word because uh, it's just everywhere you, in the book of Acts where, where Luke, the writer, the human writer, he is very specific about the words he chooses to use. And this colony was, uh, this was a city that was founded by, by Roman soldiers that were, they were given this parcel of land to develop a city so that the Romans would have a strong outpost uh, back in the day in its, in its founding of Philippi. And uh, so that's why it's called a colony. So they went there and they went into, verse number 13 says, they went into uh, to the riverside. In other words, they were looking for a group of people who might be more inclined to hear the gospel than just going out in the middle of everyone. And that's, that was always Paul, and, Paul and, and Barnabas, and then now Paul and Silas, that was their way. They sought out people whose, whose disposition toward the Lord was most likely to be favorable first. And then they kind of went from there. And so that's, what's, that's what they're doing here. But notice, notice they, they go to this riverside. There's women there. Why aren't the men there? That's why I want to know, why, where are the men? Where are the men? The ladies, some people think these are Jewish ladies because it is the Sabbath. Maybe there wasn't a synagogue here. I don't know if these, these are Jewish ladies or not. Her name is Lydia, which is not a, not a Hebrew name. Uh, but, but anyhow, th- there were these ladies here. They had gathered to worship God. And this was true of Lydia of Thyatira. Just as, a, as another note, in verse number uh, 6, the Bible says that Paul, he wanted to go to Asia, which is the, the southwestern portion of Turkey, which is a province, remember, from last Sunday of, of the Roman Empire, the province of Asia. He wanted to go there, but the Lord forbid it. But here is a lady from Thyatira. Thyatira, if you remember, is, is in the, the uh, second and third chapter of Revelation because it is a city in that province. So even though the Lord did not give him uh, liberty to go to the, the province of Asia, he had him pass along and go over to Macedonia and to Greece Yet the Lord allowed him to reach an Asian, someone from Thyatira. So you see these women gathering and, and they're worshiping God. Their heart is, that is, they have a disposition toward the Lord that is favorable. It is favorable. And of course, we know that Lydia, let's just read verse 14 and 15 again, just to get the context again. And a certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us whose heart the Lord opened. This, listen now, this is the Apostle Paul. You know, we spent, I spent all that time last Sunday night to describe to you how pivotal, right? How, how, how the Macedonian call was a seminal moment in world history because the Lord said, I don't want you to go this way, I want you to go that way. And it ended up being that it, would, it, it was westward, which downstream, many, many centuries later, 
the gospel, we have the gospel because of that direction the Lord gave. And that's what we saw. And so you see these, these earth-moving events. And you see the great apostle Paul reaching one person, a single individual. Everybody there, he goes to where he goes to where he thinks people might be disposed to hear the gospel. And there was one solitary lady. Now, as I said, with a Macedonian call, we might assume that the Lord had something big planned. And I'm sure he did, obviously, because we look back some couple thousand years later and we see what the Lord had a lot planned. But notice it didn't start out big. He did not find, Paul did not find a huge crowd of people saying, thank you for coming and helping us. No, he saw, he found what? A single individual with an open heart. And not only that, but he did not even, he, he didn't even find a, a man who would be prepared and, and suited to begin pastoring the church at Philippi. We don't see that at all. We see a lady. We see a lady. A single individual that Paul witnessed to. You see, no person, no individual was too insignificant, even for the Apostle Paul. You know, this reminds me of what Hebrews says. That the book of Hebrews says that Christ, by the grace of God, tasted death for every man. He tasted death for every man. You know what that tells us? That tells us that it is worthwhile to give the gospel to every person. Every person's salvation is available. Every single individual. You know, Paul could have looked at this and said, well, there's not a big crowd like I thought, or I'm only going to go where there's a big crowd, and this individual would have been missed. You know, and some people think that's, that's what you're supposed to do. And they overlook the individuals. But here's the thing we have to understand, is that he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful in that which is greater, right? It's the principle of we start with that which is small. And you know, we think about this, uh, this care home ministry that we're trying to start, right, with Brother Burgess. You know, we might be tempted, tempted to look at that. That is not a glorious ministry. That is not a ministry that is where, where there's a lot of thanks, where you're going to have a lot of people. We're going to have basically nobody from, from the care home that's going to come to our church. So we're not doing it for that reason. We're laboring, we're trying, to, we're trying to encourage and help these people in obscurity because God has called us to faithfulness and not to overlook those who are overlooked like that. So you have, you have God calling him by a vision to go into Macedonia and he's met with a, just a single individual. A single individual. Let us not look upon the, the small things and the small opportunities that you have. This is going to be the beginning point. One individual is going to be the beginning point of the Philippians church. Did you know in the book of, Philipp, the book of Philippians, there's not one negative thing said to that, to that church. Did you know that? There's a book that's written in our Bible. The book of Philippians is written to these people after the fact. And the Lord has nothing but praise. And you know what the, the theme of the book of Philippians is? It's rejoicing. It's rejoicing. It all started with one 
single individual. And the thing is, you and I, when we witness to someone, when we give the gospel to someone, we have no idea what that might entail in that person's life and how it might, the, what, what the downstream effects of those, that person's life will be on others. This is why the Lord tells us to go and preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature. You know, it's, sometimes I just, want to, I just want to be honest with you, it's sickening when you see preachers and missionaries that all that they're concerned with is the, is the big things. And the little things, the obscure, the obscure things are, are, aren't valued at all. It's just the big things. You know, when we read a prayer letter in this church about a missionary who, who has given the gospel, Brother Brown, I think it's fresh on my mind, Brother Brown talked about how in his Light of Life radio broadcast, one man, not his family, not like this, but one single individual contacted him from that and said that he had trusted in Christ. One individual. And there's a lot of mission fields where that is, that is common. You hope for one person. You say, is that worth it? Yes, it is. The Bible says in verse number 14, just one little phrase here, it says, of Lydia, she worshiped God and Lydia heard us whose heart the Lord opened. Here's what we see with this, whose heart the Lord opened. Just as we read, we, we've already, at the beginning of the book of Acts, we talk about the sign gifts, right? These, these great miraculous things that God did with them. Mark 16, verse 20 says this, They went forth, that is the disciples, and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. In other words, the Lord showed that He was with them and helping them and working with them. His hands were involved by means of the, the miraculous signs that He had promised to give them. And He did, but there are no signs here. But yet the Lord is still working with them. How is the Lord working with them? He's working with them in a different way. You know how? Because He's opening a single individual's heart. He's opening a single individual's heart. You know, to open the heart means that God is working in a person's life. Think about what it means when your heart is opened. You know, that implies that prior to that, your heart was, may, may not have been open, may not have been, we might say, receptive or inclined to the gospel. But here's what we see. The Lord with Paul and Silas, the Lord working in conjunction with what they're doing, He is, he is going before them. He is working personally in the life of this lady to alter the disposition of her heart. Now, now hear me. He's changing the disposition of her heart so that it opens up so that what Paul and Barnabas, I want to say Barnabas, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, who's, these are the four, the four in, this, in this group here, so that the message that they give goes, finds entrance into that person's heart. And here's what we see. The Lord, every time anybody comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, anytime, every single time that someone trusts in Christ, they only do so because God has been actively personally involved in ordering their life and in His providence bringing things to pass 
to open that person's heart to him. It is, listen, this is not an automatic process. You know, when you got saved, when you put your faith in Christ, your heart at the beginning was not open to that. Even as even children, children, that people that get saved as children will testify to the fact that even as a child, their heart was closed and they were resistant to the gospel. My kids have, have told, told me that before. And then the Lord worked in their life and opened their heart. Many of you remember before you came, before you actually trusted in Christ, many of you remember that, that kind of moment or that time, that period when God started to change your heart. He changed it. What was once closed, what was once resistant, what was once uh, uh, averse to the gospel, something changed in you. Do you. Can you give me a nod? Do you guys remember that? When your heart went from resistant, disinterested, uh, uh, ambivalent to interested, to caring, to wanting, to desiring. That didn't happen by accident. It happened because, listen now, because God himself personally was working in you. God himself was personally working in me. That tells us that every single time someone comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, every time God has been working individually. So I want to tell you something. In, in our ministries that this church, that, that our church in, involves ourselves in, whether it be evangelism or whatever, God is working with us. We are not doing this on our own, but this reminds us of another fact. Not only is this a single individual whose heart the Lord opened, but you combine those two things, that tells us this. When we pray, when we pray, we can pray for every single individual that is yet without Christ. And that, listen, that's how we should pray. Pray for them by name. Pray for the Lydia's of the world. Pray for your loved ones by name that God would open their heart. God would open their heart. Because you know that Christ died for them. You know that Christ loves them for he showed it because he died, tasted death for every man. And you know he's interested in every individual. And you know he's personally, individually working in every individual. That means when your prayer goes to God, God is working on every single individual. Now in this case, we see, we might say, uh, you, you know, not every time you see someone like Cornelius as an example. You, the Bible doesn't say explicitly that Cornelius, that God opened Cornelius' heart. God doesn't say specifically that God opened the jailer's heart in the latter part of this chapter. God doesn't say specifically every time he does that, but he does it every time because the heart is not inclined to God. The heart is averse to God. That is a part of our nature. We do not want God to be Lord over us. We do not want to admit we're sinful. We do not want to confess that we're guilty. We do, not want to, we do not want to number ourselves with those who are on the road to hell. We don't want to do that. So we avoid, just like Adam and Eve, we avoid God. Just like Cain, avoid God. So the Lord begins to bring things to pass in our life, to work in our life, so that though we were inclined away from the Lord, 
He brings us so that we're inclined to Him. We were not interested in Him, but now we are. We did not know of our need, but now we're alarmed at where we stand with God. Think about that time in your life. Think about that time in your life. What we should do is we should pray that God would do that in the lives of every person that we are praying for them to come to, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That He would open their heart. You see, if God had not opened our heart, we would not have come to Him. That's just the reality. So we see, just in summary... God is personally involved in the salvation of every person. Not only at the moment they trust in, in Christ and they call upon Him, but everything leading up to it, the Lord's at work. And you know what? You can't always tell. So that's why you should not, you should not faint in your prayers for people because you and I cannot tell when God's working on somebody's heart because they're not there going to tell you. Now, after they trust in Christ, they'll come back and they'll say, yeah, this la- the last six months have been miserable. And the Lord did this, and He did this, and He did this, and my heart started to change. This is the testimony of everybody in here that's put their faith in Christ. And so we see that prayer is of the highest importance when evangelizing and winning people to the Lord. It is not a secondary matter. It's a primary matter. We should pray that God would open their hearts. You know, sometimes the Lord opens people's hearts in a, in a way that's subtle, like you see here, and sometimes it's more dramatic. Sometimes the Lord uses tragedy. You know, some, you know, some uh, uh, skeptics of Christianity, atheists, agnostic types, they will criticize Christianity and they will say, ah, oh, you guys just need a crutch. It's always, you know, this bad thing happened in my life and so I turned to God. It's all, yeah, you know why? Because that's what it took to turn the heart. The difference is that you haven't been to that point yet. That's the only difference. You haven't, you haven't realized it yet. But see, the Lord in His goodness will bring these things to pass. Maybe a death in the family. Maybe a close call. Maybe an illness. Maybe, listen, maybe a shameful exposure of sin to awaken somebody, to cause them to second guess well, maybe I'm not right. Maybe I'm not, I'm not good to go. Maybe, maybe this thing that I've been believing in is, is not exactly like I thought it was. Maybe I'm in error. Maybe I'm, and it alarms them. That, that's just the work of God. That's just the work of God. Now let's keep going. Look at verse 15. The Bible says that when she was baptized and her household, she besought us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. I was reading a commentary uh, on this, and it, it used verse 15 to, to say that this was obviously an instance of infant baptism. Obviously. See, so, so it says, let's just read it with that, with that light now. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. Yeah. So there were other people that got baptized. I don't, I don't deny that at all. But to say that infant baptism is in verse 15, you must assume... First of all, that she had children. It doesn't say children, it says household. Household is not just your children. It could be servants. It could be other family members. 
All right, that's, you have to assume, first of all, she had children. Number two, you have to assume that if she did have children, her children are too young to believe the gospel, right? This is all assuming now. Number three, if you did assume those two things, you have to assume also that her children did not believe the gospel. All right, so say there were kids. Just because they were baptized doesn't mean they didn't believe. Number four, you also have to assume that every individual was baptized because you could easily say her household was baptized without mentioning the fact that there was a, you know, a three-year-old that didn't get baptized because, and yet her, still her whole house, you know, like for instance, I look at Brother Eric and Sister Sharon, you know, they got Victor and they got Callum and Evelyn, right? But I would say they're a Christian family. Well, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that Evelyn has believed in Christ. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And besides that, they ignore what we see down in verses 33 and 34, which is when the Philippian jailer got saved, the Bible says he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And you think, see, just like this, he baptized everybody in the house no matter what. And then verse 34 says, and when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Uh-oh. All the same people that had been baptized were also believing. You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. What we read in verse number 15 is a classic example of an argument from silence and from assumption to get to a desired doctrinal destination. So that was already predetermined before we got to verse 15. This is what I wanted to say. So I'm going to assume everything to make it so. Instead of letting the Scripture speak, informing your doctrine from what the Scripture says. Let's drop down to verse number 16. The Bible says, And it came to pass as we went, went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. And the same followed Paul and us and cried, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show us, unto us the way of salvation. And this they, she did many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said unto the, to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Now hold your place here, if you would, and look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Verse 23. You see a similar instance here in the life of the Lord, and this, was not, this is not a singular instance. It happened over and over. Verse number 23, Mark chapter 1. And there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now why? I want to know why in the church was there a man with a devil? That's a good question. Now again, this is the synagogue. Now we understand that, but it does raise an important question. Anyhow, he says, and he cried out, verse 24, saying, here's what the devil is saying now, let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Pause. Is this devil telling the truth? He's speaking facts. Jesus is the Holy One of God. Jesus is indeed the Son of God, God in the flesh, verse 25. Which is interesting because in this case, as many lies, the devil is the father of lies. And with all the lies he's telling, all of a sudden in this case, he's telling the truth. Note that. 
Verse 20, uh, 25, And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean, unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. Why did Jesus tell him to be quiet? Not to speak. Verse number 34. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. Listen, why not get free advertisement? Why not get free advertisement? After all, going back, go, go ahead and go back to uh, our previous uh, Acts chapter 16. Why, is, why are Paul and Silas, like the Lord, grieved that, the, that this, this lady with a devil is is saying, these men have come to, to tell us the, the way of salvation. These are the servants of the Most High God. You think, well, hey, that's great. You know, she's, she's helping. She's helping. No, she is not helping. He did not want this free advertisement. You see, here's the problem. The source of this announcement was the problem. You see, by this devil-possessed woman the gospel of Christ would be associated to the hearers with whatever her reputation was. She's well known. If you've never been to a country where, where this kind of witchcraft and fortune telling is common, people know who they are. They're well known. This lady was well known. She had masters. People went to her and paid money to find out when they should get married and when they should do this, when they should go on a journey. This is, all, this is what she did. And she actually was, she, and, and this does not indicate she was faking it. She actually had a devil that would facilitate this. Everybody knew her, but does the, did Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke want the name of Christ and the gospel associated with a woman with a devil? No. It was bad. It's, it, would be, it would actually tarnish the name of Christ. And here's the principle. The reputation and the testimony of the person speaking the gospel and talking about Jesus colors the gospel of Christ about which they speak, whether for good or for ill. When you talk about Jesus and when I talk about Jesus, when you give somebody the gospel and when I give somebody the gospel, Christ's name is therefore associated with us. Should Christ's name be associated with witchcraft and soothsaying? Should Christ's name be associated, listen now, with alcohol and with profanity and with dishonesty? Should Christ's name be associated with purloining, like we studied, theft, Laziness, not paying one's bills. Should Christ's name be associated with a man that doesn't love his husband and a wife who doesn't love a man who doesn't love his wife and a you better get that right and a woman who doesn't love her husband? Should Christ's name is it is it is it fitting that the name of Christ be be associated with such a person? It is not. It matters. Listen, it matters the way we live for we bear the name of Christ and people associate it with us. And the Lord, listen, 
Paul was grieved that she would say such a thing. He didn't want her voice to bear the name of Christ. Psalm 50, verse 16, I've mentioned this before, but the Bible says this, listen closely. But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? God says, Keep my word out of your filthy mouth. That's pretty strong. Well, you know what it tells us? Our testimony has to be right. The solution is, well, I just won't talk about Jesus. Well, then at that point, you and I will be living in disobedience. For the Lord told us to tell people about Jesus. Do we not care that they're going to perish? Do we not love them? Okay, well, then I'll tell them about Jesus. Well, then that means your life and my life have to be upright. We have to love our spouses and raise our children right. And we have to... We have to stay away from wickedness and we have to have sound testimonies. And listen, this is, this is not about our reputation. It's about the Lord's reputation. It's not about having a nice facade that people see on Sunday. No, 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 no. This is not on Sunday. This is out there among them, those other people that don't know the Lord. That's what we're talking about. I am not advocating for being a two-faced person. Rather the opposite. I'm advocating for having a a good face, one good, real face in front of everyone. Because like it or not, the testimony that you have in your family, at your job, everywhere else, absolutely colors the name of Christ and the gospel. Yeah, I know of, I've heard of a missionary who actually paid unbelieving people on his mission field to hand out gospel tracts. What an abomination. It's just, it's like a factory. You know, the more you get, the more you get, the more you get. No, no, no. It's not like, it's not mechanics like that. It's not, we're not a machine here. The gospel is not a machine that you just, you manipulate levers and and out pops a, a, a saint. That's not how it works. The Lord uses people He's chosen to use people. You see, the devils always seem to say the truth about Christ in these cases. But in this case, their mouths are not fit for the truth. And this poor lady, truth is this lady was probably half as much as a victim as she was a perpetrator. She was being used. She had masters. She won't have a choice. Maybe she's addicted to something. I don't know. Now look at verse number 19. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. I spent a copious and obscene amount of time looking at the ruins of Philippi yesterday. It's very interesting. You've been to Philippi, right? Yeah. It's not very big. It's not very big, but it has a wall, or it did, anyway. It goes up on top of the mountain. And so they brought him into the marketplace, which still stands. Well, it's the ruins of it, anyway, stand. Unto the rulers, and they, besought them, they brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. Now, they didn't know that Paul and Silas are both Romans. 
They had Roman citizenship. Paul from birth. So this is obviously false. Notice they're, going, they're, they're taking a racial line. They're taking a racial line. This is anti-Semitism right here. This is hatred of the Jews because they're Jews. And using that as a pretext for punishing them. Notice they don't say anything about Christ. But here, I want to ask you one question. What is driving this whole matter? There is one thing that is driving this whole matter. Does anybody know what it is? Money. It's money. It's not about them trying to protect Roman law or culture. It's not about disrupting everything. No, it's about these guys are covetous men and wicked men and idolatrous men as a result, and they are angry that he is disrupting. By, because of this woman, he is disrupting their gain. The Bible says, The love of money is the root of all evil, while which some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. See, the love of, the love of money drives all sorts of evil. It is, it is the root, it is the driving force, it's the energy behind all sorts of evil. You know, I think of, uh, I think especially when people, when people uh, pass away in families, that lust for money absolutely takes the heart away from those who are set to be the heirs. It's, it's just absolutely disgusting. And they, these men are willing to lie. They're willing to cheat. They're willing to, they're willing to falsely accuse. They could not care less about this woman that they have used and abused. They don't care about Paul and Silas. They don't care about justice. They don't care about truth. Although they talk about the law and all this stuff. They talk about it. They don't care anything about all that. Why? Money. Be, listen, we have to be careful. Money cannot. Listen, the Bible calls it unrighteous mammon. It calls it Filthy lucre. We all know we got to have it to live. You got to pay your bills with it. But listen, it cannot absolutely be your master. The Bible says you cannot have two masters. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. You know what? I'll just tell you, I'll just tell you right now. There are some businesses like we see here that shouldn't be in business. That should be put out of business. They absolutely should be put out of business, should not exist. Well, they have a legal right to be there, but they shouldn't. God doesn't care about the legal rights. Some businesses should be closed. Places that sell liquor should be closed. Strip clubs should be closed. Abortion clinics should be closed. There's some things you shouldn't make money from. Your hands and my hands shouldn't be a part of it. Under any circumstance, Verse 22, and the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Notice this jailer. Now, I know the word jailer is used in verse 24 or 23, but it's the same word as, as we see in verse 27, the keeper of the prison, same word. Verse 25, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. The only explanation for their prayers and praises to God, while their backs are bleeding, I'm talking, they got a whipping like you, have, you could not dream 
This is not a child whipping. This is a, this is a grown man whooping. This is the kind that you, it takes months to get over. They got a fresh whipping scar. They got open wounds on their back. No doubt bruises, deep bruises, maybe broken ribs and everything else. And here they are praising God, thanking God. This is inexplicable. You see, outside of these men, there is no reason to rejoice or praise God whatsoever, but they do. Because they are in prison with a clear conscience before God. They're rejoicing that they're counted worthy to shepherd's shame for Christ's name. Listen, they have God in them and God causes them to rejoice. A believer can rejoice in any circumstance. Hear me now. If God is in you and God is in me, we have the ability to rejoice in any circumstance because the joy comes from God who is in us, not from that which is happening to us. Now, I know that's not always the case. And you know that's not always the case, right? But it can be. But it can be. And this, listen, this is a true mark of a child of God. God is in them and the joy is springing up from within. This world only knows joy from good things that happen to them. They have none from within and so they don't have joy. You know, there are people that live in palaces or palatial houses I mean, they have everything they want and their body is healthy. And you know what? They have, a, they have a wife, they have a husband, they have all the children, they have all everything they want. Their bank account is full to the brim. They're still, they have no joy. And here, here are these men, just like if you were in this place or if I was in this place, we could be here too, rejoicing in prison. Now, the last thing I want to show you is this, verse 27. Verse 26, rather. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. We'll talk about this later, but I just want to keep going for time's sake. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? God has opened a heart. Does it say it? No. But just like he did with Lydia, he's used a different set of circumstances in maybe a more dramatic fashion. To change a man who thrust them, right? Verse 24, thrust them into the inner prison and locked uh, uh, shackles on their feet. That, that same man, all of a sudden, he heard them sing. So what in the world? They just got flogged. They're in prison in the middle of the night. Why are they singing? And they, he heard what they were singing about, just like the prisoners did. And then there's this this providential earthquake and all the stuff falls off and yet they're not even leaving the prison. All of those things in a moment. A man's heart is now open. Whereas six hours ago it wasn't. And he asked the most important question. What must I do to be saved? Now think about it. Verse 31, we all know this verse. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. He said, what must I do to be saved? 
Now, is believing something you do? Well, yeah, technically. But listen. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, a lot of people mess this up. Paul is not saying, jailer, you just need to accept that Jesus is real. No. That's not, it's not an acknowledgement. The Bible says that the devils believe and tremble. That's not what it is. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is to put your heart's trust and faith, yea, your hope, your very hope of eternal life is laid upon Christ and what He did for you. He did it all! On the cross, He died in our place, tasted death for every man. He was buried according to the Scriptures, and He rose again the third day to give us eternal life, right? All these things Christ did. And so the, the, he already did the work. You see what I'm saying? He did the work. And so we say, what must I do to be saved now in 2024? And the answer is, he did it. You just trust him. You just lean on him. There's no church. There's no he doesn't mention church, baptism, communion, Eucharist, nothing like that. Good works. No, none of that, he says, one word. Put your trust and your hope upon what Jesus did for you, upon the person of Jesus Christ. He did it all. This is what this verse means. It's not just, listen, I know when I got saved, it was all about, the talk was all about head knowledge versus heart knowledge. How many of you have heard that? People say that before. People get saved, people realize that they, they, they were lost and they didn't know it. They, they were members of the churches and they didn't know they were lost. And they said, well, I, I had head knowledge, but heart knowledge. You know what that means? That means you know all the facts about Christianity. You can, you can quote the facts and verses, but you are not trusting Jesus. You're trusting the fact that you know the facts. Jesus paid it all. He did everything necessary to save us. We just believe on Him. Let's pray.